Good morning, and welcome to Monday Mornings. With Maddie and Morgan. I'm Maddie. And I'm Morgan. Hello! Hi! How are you? Fantastic. Good. How are you? Well, guys, I'm sorry that we didn't release an episode last week. I couldn't get my shit together in time. He's okay. But we're here, and... Today's episode's probably going to be long, so just think of it as two weeks in one. Can't wait. And hopefully you liked our little mini Freaky Friday episode that got released on Friday. Yeah. If you haven't heard it yet, go listen, because Maddie did a great job. I just and... posed. Nobody could see that. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the audience could see you. <laughs> I literally just... Recompose. <laughs> right. When we record, we don't even like video chat, so I can't even see it. <laughs> I know it's <laughs> just posing for herself. <laughs> Whatever makes you feel good. It's fine. What's new, pal? Um, I got a mushroom tattoo. You no, know, I love him. He's so cute. He's so good. He's just strolling along my ankle. Yeah. Also realized he's gonna look. He might be a little low, but he's going to be peeking out from the top of, like, any hiking boots or any boots I wear. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Got really excited about that one the other day. (laughs) Now I want a mushroom. you got to do it. Mushroom forest. I've been really, I told you already, but I've been really into mushrooms lately. Yes. I love Not the drugs, the edible ones. Yeah. But. I joined a foraging Facebook group, and I don't know anything about foraging, so I just have been looking at other people's pictures, and I'm scared you see, <laughs> of poisoning myself. One of my favorite things about Morgan is she just joins these Facebook groups. Um, <laughs> the big veg group. <laughs> True, the giant veg group. I'm still a part of that group. I never left it. Oh, thank God. <laughs> so I get to see all their pictures too. It's we gotta beautiful. know because sometimes we gotta just extend our spooky road trip to uh across the pond, and we'll have to yeah. go to one of these competitions. <laughs> just drive across the water. <laughs> yeah, cars do that, right? Yeah. Well, someday they will. Tyler, can you get on that? Thanks. Yeah, Tyler, can you get on that? Thanks. <laughs> we need a duck boat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Paint our logo on the side. <laughs> Today, I'm going to do part two of our Long Trail series. I mean, there's only going to be two episodes, but I guess you can call it a series. (laughs) But this one, so you all know that last time I covered, like, general info and history and all that jazz. And today, we're going to cover spooky shit that's happened on the Long Trail. And I probably got a little too into this, so it's probably going to be kind of long, so I apologize. It's okay. I'm so excited. Also, really quick, we should do a haunted hiking series. Yes, I love that. That That would be be a good thing for our minis. Yes. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. Uh, Disclaimer, I didn't know about any of this while I was hiking. I I learned all of this after. That's probably for the best. <laughs> That's true. And it is, there is a weird thing about this that <laughs> all of this spooky stuff is kind of central to the southern portion of the trail. Hmm. 
like strictly the southern portion of the trail. <laughs> Weird. Is yeah. it more hiked than the rest of it? No. Huh. If anything, it's less hiked than the rest of it. So, I don't know. But, yeah. Maybe there's more, but, you know, you can only... Really, we only know about what's been reported, so... Maybe there's something to do with, like, magnets. <laughs> Maybe. You know. Well, well, the first thing I'm going to tell you about is the Bennington Triangle. Ah. Uh, so I'm sure... I've heard of this one. You've heard all about the Bermuda Triangle, maybe even the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts. Oh, yeah. But did you know, apparently you knew, that there's a Bennington Triangle? I only knew because... I haven't listened to the episode on it, but um, Morbid, I think, has done the Bennington Triangle. Oh. I actually surprisingly did not listen to any podcasts for this one. Damn. I know. That's usually the first place I start. Same. So I just listen while I'm driving. True. But, basically, a bunch of pretty sinister stuff has happened in the greater Bennington area, and it's often based on legends and lore and all that jazz, that has basically created this notoriety that has become the Bennington Triangle. It's kind of a non-specific area um, in the, like, southern part, southwestern part of Vermont, so near Bennington, obviously. Nice. But, so basically what I'm going to do is just tell you about a bunch of stuff that happened, and... The majority of it is Bennington Triangle-centric, and then I'll go into some other stuff afterwards. But So everything I say now, we're just going to assume is part of the Bennington Triangle. <laughs> All right. So first, we get to talk about the Glastonbury ghost town. Mm. So Glastonbury is a town in Bennington County, Vermont. The town is unincorporated by an active state legislature legislature in 1937 and is now essentially a ghost town oh the population at the 2010 census was eight what (laughs) yeah (laughs) i tried to look up um what the 2020 census said but it hasn't come out yet so (laughs) yeah they extended a lot of the dates for that one so so we'll know eventually we'll update you (laughs) Along with Somerset, Glastonbury is one of two Vermont towns where the population levels have dropped so low that the town has been unincorporated. And because it was unincorporated in 1937, it's been abandoned for a long time. Wow. Surprising there's still eight people who live there, though. I know. Allegedly. We don't know. But the town has no local government and the town's affairs are handled by a state-appointed supervisor. Which I'm assuming is just, like, the closest town government next yeah. to it, whatever. Like, but. you guys are responsible for them now. Right. <laughs> Glastonbury was first chartered in 1761 by New Hampshire Governor Benning Wentworth, but settlers did not begin trickling into this rocky, forbidding, mountainous area for some years after that. At the time of Vermont's first census as a new state in 1791, Only six families inhabited it. These first settlers found life on Glastonbury Mountain difficult, as would residents ever after. And by 1800, they had been replaced by eight entirely different families. Oh. 
Of these eight, only three would stay on until the next census 10 years later, and only one of these would remain in later decades. That's wacky. Yeah, that's a high turnover. <laughs> it's also, like, so few people for, like, what? Ugh, crazy. But then yeah. again, families back then were big, so who knows? Each family was probably like 20 people. That's true. I'm, <laughs> I'll kind of probably talk about this later, but... It's kind of a weird section because it's not, like, overall the elevation isn't super high, but it's a lot of, like, straight up and straight back down rugged stuff (laughs) that makes being a settler difficult. (laughs) Understandable. So despite the many hardships that greeted Glastonbury settlers, newcomers continued to arrive in small numbers. And the population grew slowly to a total of 76 people in 1810. Wow. I know. (laughs) (laughs) The years following 1810 were hard ones for all of Vermont. And by 1840, there were only 53 people left in Glastonbury. Okay. I know. (laughs) I mean, they've been like, it was what, eight people 2010 and 1872, they only had 30-something? That's crazy. Or 50-something? Yeah, 53 in 1840. Yeah, that's crazy. After the Civil War, Glastonbury finally began to experience more rapid growth. Business interests in nearby Bennington were eager to take advantage of the vast timber resources, and by 1872 had finally begun construction on a railroad Mm. slash trolley situation that ran directly up the mountain, which was... (laughs) I do that. I'm like, how'd you build that? <laughs> Why'd you build that? Mm-hmm. The line ran along Boyles Brook, Polly's Brook, and terminated at the place where the brook forked. It was an improbable achievement with some parts of the line climbing as much as 250 feet in alti- altitude per mile. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Remains of the old trolley tracks can still be seen today. Meanwhile, the population had grown to, wait for it, 199 in in 1870. Damn! And then to 241 in 1880. Oh my goodness. That's so many. Those 200 people just kept having babies. (laughs) Mm. This includes only the enumerated population, and there were a lot more transient workers who were also drawn to the mountain to work. Ah. Because the logging business was booming at the time. So two additional sawmills sawmills were built in the 1870s. One in the original settlement, which was called Fayville. And then one in the new settlement where the railroad terminus was, which became known as South Glastonbury. Mm. So Fayville and South Glastonbury kind of were like, they're referred to in totality as Glastonbury. Gotcha. Dozens of kilns were built at South Glastonbury for converting the lumber to charcoal. At this time, Glastonbury was one of the three foremost sites in Vermont for producing the charcoal, which was feeding iron production in nearby Shaftesbury and in Troy, New York. By the late 1880s, however, the mountain had been cleared of pretty much all its mature trees, and the town's economy dipped dramatically. Because they cut down all the trees, and that was how they were making their money. (laughs) 
1889, the railroad operation ceased. It was revived briefly in 1894 as an electric passenger trolley run by the Bennington and Woodford Railroad. And a brief and initially promising effort was made to convert South Glastonbury to a tourist attraction. A small fortune was spent to convert the area into a mountain resort area, which opened in the summer of 1980 or 1898. But a snowstorm wiped out the railroad tracks in the winter, marking the beginning of the end of Glastonbury as a functioning town. Damn. Population dwindled in the early 20th century down to only seven in 1937 when the legislature unincorporated the town. Damn. I know. So I guess there is like kind of some stuff you can still see, but it's been abandoned for so long that yeah, there's not much left. It's just kind of thick woods now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's like when people talk about the Bennington Triangle, that's usually where it starts. <laughs> gotcha. Abandoned Glastonbury area. So next, I'm going to talk about the Bennington Monster. We have a cryptid. <gasps> I know. <laughs> to Yay. clarify, there's only been one reported sighting of it. <laughs> it's okay. Still counts. Yep. In the early 1800s, a stranded or stranded stagecoach passengers reported being attacked by a huge hairy creature that stood over six feet tall. <laughs> oh. Recurring sightings of the Bigfoot-like monster became so common that locals dubbed the creature the Bennington Monster. Glastonbury Mountain has also been the site of many reported UFO sightings and unexplained lights throughout the years. Hmm. So there's that. So I guess there was more than one sighting, but they were all a really long time ago. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, is it a bear with a skin disorder? <laughs> right. <laughs> with <mange>, probably. <laughs> Literally. This one is a little bit darker. Mm. I'm going to talk about the Patch Hollow Massacre. Oh, no. I know. That's not a good word. <laughs> and there was basically a lot of this stuff is weird because I'm sure it's you can find information about it in like historical town archives and that kind of thing. Yeah. But when you yeah. look online, there's always like one article. Yeah. And then it's like, do you really have to go to that town library? <laughs> right. Exactly. So I'm going to read from directly from the one article I found. Oh, wow. <laughs> because they do it better than I could. But yeah. I'm going to tell you about the Patch Hollow Massacre. I'm going to sk skip the intro because whatever. Yeah. So, the long trail travels north from Glastonbury over the peaks of southern Vermont's Green Mountains, dips down and back up the steep gulf around Route 140, and descends upon a wild and desolate area above Wallingford called Patch Hollow. Running in a north-south direction, Patch Hollow is a deep trench of land high in the Green Mountains, formed by the steep slope of Bear Mountain to the west and the more gentle Button Hill to the east. In the center of this densely wooded bowl is a large swamp, its green waters occasionally protruded by the skeletons of dead trees that twist towards the Wallingford skies above. To clarify, this is a blog, so... <laughs> That's why it's so poetically written. <laughs> oh, my God. 
<laughs> I didn't really taking it. me on a journey here. <laughs> Setting the scene. <laughs> In 2008, the beaver dam broke with such force that it sent, sent a large wall of water plowing down the steep hillsides, carving a jagged gorge into the land and completely taking out a chunk of Route 140. The bafflingly large boulders that were transported down the hill still sit along the roadside today. Which, like, of course they do. That 2008 wasn't that long ago. <laughs> like, that's big, heavy, and costs a lot of money of taxpayers' <laughs> dollars to move. Right. <laughs> the power of Mother Nature is both awesome and awe-inspiring, and <laughs> Hollow is indeed a wild place. I know this hollow personally as I grew up. Okay. Um, let's skip this paragraph. Okay. I don't know it. Also, I, awesome and awe-inspiring is the same thing. Yeah. So what happened here? The story goes back to May 11th, 1831. One of the settlements in the hollow, who was owned by Roland Wheeler, a, quote, man of violent passions and jealous disposition, end quote, according Sorry. to an account written in 1911. <laughs> I was thinking, like, Roland, like, from Schitt's Creek. <laughs> and then you just described him and it ruined it. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. It gets worse. <laughs> God damn it. Dick. Wheeler was reportedly guilty of sexual acts with his wife's sister. Ooh. A situation that was, when leaked, created a great deal of resentment from the community. Wow. Obviously, because the community probably wasn't very big. <laughs> yeah, they're like, why, bruh? Some community members from Wallingford and nearby Shrewsbury were so resentful that they decided to go as far as to form a mob with the intent of tar and feathering him. Stop, that's my favorite. It's the best. <laughs> Threats remained so publicly that Wheeler was forewarned and took measures to defend himself. He fashioned a knife from a large file and barred his door. On the night of May 11th, your classic angry mob scenario formed two parties from Shrewsbury and Wallingford and set out for Patch Hollow for some justice. Equipped with jugs of rum, a bucket of tar, and a sack of feathers, both parties made their way into the mountains. The party from Shrewsbury never made it. They got lost in the woods instead. Good, <laughs> Good for them. Their pride damaged, the reality of getting lost overpowered the want for vigilante justice, and the group returned home. <laughs> yeah, they went back with their rum and... Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> they went and drank it. <laughs> and made a pinata on their own. <laughs> yes. Oh. The only group didn't share the same fate and did arrive at Wheeler's house. Mm. They eventually forced their way in by prying a hole in the gable of the roof... And three men leaped into the house and struggled with Wheeler in the dark. Wheeler stabbed one man in the side and another was slashed to an excessive amount of 14 times. Damn. I know. The door to the cabin was unbarred and more people poured into the cabin. In the scuffle, someone was killed. The angry mob stopped being belligerent and went to get a better look at their, quote, prize. Oh, no. In all that haste, they made a fatal and rather embarrassing mistake. They killed group member and friend Isaac Osborne by mistake. Wheeler was nowhere to be found. Dummies. Yeah. 
After a few minutes of trying to comprehend the situation, the group noticed that a set of clothes had been strewn across the cabin floor. The picture was clearer now. Mueller had escaped the hands of one of his attackers by wrestling out of his clothes, crawling onto his bed, and prying up some floorboards between, before escaping beneath the house. What? Yep. They fumbled <laughs> that so hard. Back when your floorboards were literally led to outside. <laughs> like, what? That also reminds me of the Shanghai Tunnels, which is like... Yes. Oh my gosh, we have to do a Shanghai Tunnel episode. Yes, I've been thinking about it for a while, but every time I want to do it, it gets so overwhelming because there's so many good parts. I don't know, it'll have to be a two... We'll both do it. Yeah. But, anyway... The moment of realization was then sparked under the watchful eye of the Patch Hollow Shadows. The mob panicked, most likely all scared because they committed murder that night, and hastily fled the house. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Poor Isaac. I know. I mean, poor Hastings, too, honestly. Like, he did a shitty thing, but you don't get to tar and feather somebody for that. Yeah, Wheeler. Later, John Fox of Wallingford would visit, Dr. John Fox of Wallingford would visit the scene, which he recounted as the most terrible sight he could recall. Oh, no. By the light of a candle, Fox saw the, quote, livid body of Osborne on the bed, and the cabin literally soaked in blood. Oh, God. I know. Poor guy. After escaping the blood-stained house, Wheeler decided that spending the night naked in the woods was a safer decision than venturing back into town. Probably. Before dawn, he stole a shirt from the clothesline, walked to the Hartsboro section of town, which is now a ghost town and a road of the same name, mm. and hid in a barn. Needing <laughs> clothes, he spent part of the day crudely weaving a dress from rye straw he found in the barn. Excuse me. <laughs> And then retreating to his sister's home in Pollitt. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but after all of that and all that dressmaking, Wheeler's finally caught. No. He was arrested and put on trial in a makeshift court held at the Baptist Church in Wallingford, the only building in town that could hold crowds eager to watch the proceedings. And he was innoc- found innocent under terms of self-defense. The mob who assaulted him didn't get off so easily. Two of his attackers were fined $60 each, while three others were fined $40, which was a lot of money back then. Yeah. Justice was served, just not in the way the angry mob had expected. After the court hearing, something strange happened to Patch Hollow. Perhaps the tragic events of that chaotic night left a scar in the minds of everyone who partook, forever troubling the land. (laughs) Or maybe it was just bad for business. After that bloody incident, Patch Hollow became abandoned shortly afterwards, and to this day, no one has tried to rebuild it. Wow. Today's Patch Hollow is quieter as the mountain forests reclaim the land. The only visitors now are the countless hikers that loyally hike the long trail to get lost in the Vermont woods for a little while. Letting the wilderness and the solitude quell their thoughts. Wowie. Beautifully done. Um, so artistic and artful. Yeah, I actually remember hiking through there. And I obviously didn't know about this, but there was a sign that said Patch Hollow. And I just thought it meant like that it was a hollow in the mountains. And I was like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> if 
But now I know that there's history behind it. <laughs> now you know it's an actual town. Mm-hmm. All you remember is that the trail was really overgrown. <laughs> but, yes, that was a little brutal. Poor Isaac Osborne. Yeah. So, now we get to talk about disappearances. Ooh. Yep. The case that perhaps gained the most media attention at the time was the disappearance of 18-year-old Bennington College sophomore Paula Jean Weldon. Oh my goodness. Of Stamford, Connecticut. So, I don't know if you've ever visited the Morbid Library website, but... I have not. They typically do a really good job. So, I'm going to read from their article because they, by far, had the most information. Okay. And the article is from May 10th, 2020. So it's not super, not super recent, but kind of recent. Pretty recent in the grand scheme of the universe, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who was Paula Jean Weldon? Well, Paula Jean Weldon was born in 1928 to a well-known engineer, architect, and designer, William Weldon. He was a very influential man, which will come into play later. Paula was the oldest of four children. By all accounts, she was a typical young woman, well-liked and dealing with navigating life the best she could. Aren't we all? Yeah. She was a sophomore at Bennington College when she disappeared, and she had a job at the dining hall there. By all accounts, she was a responsible student majoring in art. It has been reported that she was dissatisfied with this major. However, as she attempted to discover what she actually wanted to do with her life, she disappeared prior to making any changes. Oh, no. I know. Though many peers stated that she was interested in botany and was maybe going to pursue that. Ooh. I know. Friends have stated that Paula may have been feeling depressed prior to her disappearance, though not starting startlingly or worryingly so. Hmm. She's very adorable. This picture of her, she had a cute little sweater on with a collared shirt underneath and, like, a, like, 40s necklace on. (laughs) Aw, she's just a baby. I know. On December 1st, 1946, oh, the title of this section is The Disappearance. On December 1st, 1946, Paula returned home to her dorm after working two shifts at her dining hall job. She spent some time studying before telling her roommate that she was going to take a break and go for a hike. But she didn't mention her destination. Hmm. She left wearing a red coat that was not suitable for the cold weather and carried no money with her. Oh. She also left an uncashed check from her parents behind, so it was clear that Paula had intended to return after her short hike. Paula was seen hitchhiking around 2.45 p.m. when a driver picked her up from the side of the road. She told the driver that she intended to hike the long trail near Glastonbury Mountain. The driver dropped her off about three miles from her destination, which is a lot of miles. (laughs) Yeah. After this, this was at, did you say 2.45 in the morning? P.m. Oh, okay. I was like, what? Way more concerning. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) After this, several people reported seeing Paula walking on the long trail. The final sighting was reported by a man who said that Paula had asked him about how long the trail actually was. (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah. 
This was around 4 p.m. <laughs> the sunset occurred at 5 p.m. that day, and it began snowing after nightfall. There are no records of Paula leaving campus, despite a rule that said students had to sign themselves out if they were going to be off campus later than 11 p.m. They were also required to check back in upon their return with the Bennington Security Office. Paula had neither signed out nor checked in with the security office. However, her disappearance was not looked into until Paula failed to attend her classes the following Monday. Oh, good. The college president phoned her parents to inquire whether she had gone home for a visit. And this call obviously sounded the alarm that something was deeply wrong. Mm. Paula's father traveled to Bennington to begin the search for his daughter. The investigation. Searches of the Long Trail began almost immediately after it was established that Paula was missing. Students from Bennington College were given time off to help with the searches organized by Paula's father. Frustrated by the lack of movement in the case, led to her father reaching out to the New York State Police as well. Mm. Eventually, Connecticut State Police joined too. Dang. Shortly after the search for Paula began, a sighting of her was reported to the police. A waitress in Fall River, Massachusetts, allegedly served a, quote, disturbed young woman that she swore looked just like Paula. That is absolutely nowhere near Vermont. (laughs) No, no, Fall River is not close. (laughs) For any of you who aren't in New England or know where that is, like, parts of Massachusetts and Vermont touch, but those are very, very far away places. (laughs) Not walkable. No. No sources I have found have explained what disturbed means, though I assumed it means agitated, possibly fearful, maybe even disruptive. Hmm. After hearing this theory, Paula's father disappeared for 36 hours, ostensibly to investigate this sighting. I have to say, it's very strange to disappear while investigating a disappearance. It doesn't sit right. Yeah, it's true. That's weird. Yeah. I mean, did they mean he disappeared as in he went down to Fall River? I think so, but he didn't tell anybody. (laughs) Oh. So he just kind of, (laughs) like, went away. (laughs) Very strange, but also maybe he was just like, got a dash. Maybe. Got a blast. Paula's father thought that her boyfriend may have had something to do with her disappearance. It's always the boyfriend. Or the Mm -hmm. husband. He did not have any qualms about voicing his theory as he did not approve of this relationship. (laughs) This theory was not taken seriously, however, as the only proof that surfaced supporting it came from a psychic. (laughs) Hey. Yeah. Sometimes. (laughs) I know. This led to the relationship between Paul's father and the police souring as he felt that they were not taking the investigation seriously. And we're acting unprofessionally. For what it's worth, his disappearance after the Fall River setting and his vehemence in suggesting that Paula's boyfriend was responsible for her disappearance has led some people to speculate that he was involved in his own daughter's disappearance. Interesting. Which, that seems like a stretch to me, but I don't know. Mostly just because, like, Connecticut and Vermont, like, that seems too far of a drive. Right. And it was like a big thing that he came up to help with. You know, and she went wandering in the woods. Like, I don't think he had anything to do with that. Right. Well, and he came up after she was already 
after she had disappeared. So, yeah, it's not like he was just there the whole time. <laughs> right. So, like we said, this was December. So, inclement weather eventually led to the search parties disbanding, but it was not the end of the investigation. For t- nearly two decades, Fred Gadette was interviewed as a witness, though each interview resulted in changes in his story. In 1955, Gadet came forward and confessed to knowing where Paula's body was buried. What a tool. After intense questioning, however, the lumberjack admitted to making the whole story up to get attention. So he's even more of a tool than we thought. That's so rude. Mm -hmm. However, after claiming the confession was false, Gadet apparently drunkenly boasted about killing Paula and hiding her body. Okay, sir. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I don't know about this guy. But mm-hmm. he was never arrested or formally accused. The last act of discovery in the case took place in 1968 when skeletal remains were found near the site of Paula's disappearance. Upon further investigation into the find, the remains were ruled as too old to be Paula. Oh, Yep. The case has remained cold since then, though the details are still shared widely around the internet. That's crazy. So there's a whole section here about theories that's really long. So basically, I'm just going to highlight them. Okay. And then I'm going to talk about the conclusion because it's interesting. All right. So the first theory is that Paula got lost. Went off the trail, got lost, and succumbed to the elements. Yeah. Which makes sense to me. I mean, she left without a jacket and then it snowed, so. Right, and it is a, I mean, it's a pretty thick forested area as well, so. Yeah. It seems like she didn't, if she was asking people about the trail, it seems like she didn't really know where she was going, so. She asked, how long is the long trail? Yeah, so... Funny. You weren't prepared. Right. The second theory is that Paula was murdered. And this can be broken down to down into two theories, which is that Paula was murdered by someone she knew and Paula was murdered by a stranger. Mm-hmm. But there really doesn't seem to be any evidence that anyone in Paula's life would have motive for killing her. Yeah. And... Yeah, so, I mean, it would be completely random if she had been murdered by a stranger. The third theory is that Paula left to start a new knife. A new life, not a new knife. (laughs) (laughs) A new life. (laughs) That one doesn't make sense to me because she left, she didn't bring money. She left an uncashed check. Yeah. Those were red herrings, but whatever. That one doesn't check out, in my opinion. No, that one's weird. <laughs> yeah. Our final theory is that the Bennington Triangle caused Paula to disappear. Could be. Yep. This her- theory revolves around the idea that there's something about the triangle that lures people in and vanishes them. Whether it means that they're killed by some malevolent force or they slip between the dimensions, depending on the individual doing the theorizing. I agree. Yeah. I don't know what I think. I mean, I think she probably just got lost and then got eaten by animals after she died. 
my immediate answer to everything is aliens. Um, That's true. They didn't list that as a theory, but that makes sense to me. Which is weird, because it's always the most obvious answer is aliens. Um, (laughs) I know, I'm surprised they didn't mention that. (laughs) Weird, but um, other than that, I think she probably just was unprepared and got lost and didn't really know where she was. I think just part of it was that, well, we're going to talk about it soon, but... Between 1945 and 1950, five people went missing in the Bennington Triangle. Ooh. And only one body was ever found. Serial killer? I mean, that's my theory. Mm. But there's not a lot of information about it, so... Serial aliens! Oh! (laughs) Serial alien abductions. (laughs) Ted Bundy's older relatives. He was from Vermont, wasn't he? He was born in Burlington, yeah. Was Israel Key... No, Israel Key's killed people in Vermont. I don't think he ever lived there. He killed people in Essex, where I used to live. I know. Scary. Old couple. I know. But there was some positive aftermath of this case. Oh. Paula's disappearance was one of the main catalysts for Vermont to establish their own state police force, because they didn't have one. Oh, well, that's that's a good start. (laughs) The governor effectively used her as a way to shame legislature legislature for their greedy, greediness. They had previously voted the idea of a state police force down because they wanted to save the money. <laughs> Which is oh, why Connecticut headed the investigation. <laughs> yeah. So Vermont State Police Force was formed a year after Paula, t- Paula disappeared in 1947. Good for them. And... Another event in the aftermath of Paula's disappearance involved legendary horror writer horror writer Shirley Jackson. Ooh. Jackson was living in North Bennington at the time of the disappearance, and her husband worked at Bennington College. The disappearance affected everyone in the area, and Jackson was no exception. Her experience of witnessing the aftermath inspired her to write Hang- Hangsman, her second novel, which is about a young woman going off to college and losing touch with reality. Oh. Yeah, so that's the disappearance of Paula Jean Weldon. That's wild. Which is by far the disappearance that has the most information about it. Probably because she was a pretty 18-year-old girl. Yeah. <laughs> so, pretty 18-year-old white girl. Mm, they get the most. Financially wealthy background. Oh, yeah. But I'm going to tell you, like I mentioned before, between 1945 and 1950, five people went missing in the Bennington Triangle area and only one body or remains were ever found. So I'm going to briefly tell you about the rest of the disappearances. The second disappearance we're going to talk about is Mitty Rivers, age 75. Oh, wow. Who was a local Bennington hunter and fisherman. He disappeared November 12, 1945, somewhere around Hell Hollow between Bald and Glastonbury Mountains. Hmm. Searchers never found any trace of him. Oh, my God. Yep. Our next is James E. Tedford, age 65. Tedford. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
like it's that. not known if Mr. Tedford actually vanished near Bennington, but on December 1st, 1949, his relatives reported him upon a Bennington-bound bus from St. Albans. Other passengers reported seeing him sleeping, but when the bus arrived, arrived in Bennington, James was nowhere to be found. But his belongings, belongings were left behind. What? Trace of him was ever found. No, thanks. Rosie is fully headbutting my computer, so I apologize. <laughs> Our next one, this one's, I mean, they're all sad, but this one's extra sad. Paul Jetson, age eight of Shaftesbury. Oh, they're all different ages. Yeah. On October 12th, 1950, this little boy wandered away from his mother's truck in a wooded area close to where Paul, Paula Weldon had vanished. A search of the area with bloodhounds ended abruptly on one spot on the trail. Two weeks after Paul Jepson disappeared on October 28, 1950, Frida Langer, age 53, of North Adams, Massachusetts, disappeared in the vicinity of others. Oh. Yeah. So, it all, by, by that, I mean in the same area as the other disappearances. <laughs> yeah. Frida left her husband, Max, age 58, resting in camp with a bad knee. She then embarked on a hike with her cousin, Herbert, Elsner. Mm-hmm. Walking through the woods of Mount Pisgah, she fell crossing a creek. She left back for camp on her own at 3.50 p.m., taking a shortcut. At 4.55, she had not arrived back at camp. Her remains were located seven months later. Although, strangely, they were located in an area that already had been thoroughly searched. Mm, that's aliens. Yep. So... Like we said, if you've been keeping track, that's five disappearances in the same geographical location within the years of 1945 and 1950, and only one body was ever found. Dang. And some claim that the Bennington Triangle is to blame, which checks out to me. But Yeah. So it makes sense. Yeah. So enough about the Bennington Triangle. We're moving on. Okay. We're going to talk about the Yellow Deli. Oh. Maddie, have you ever heard of the Yellow Deli? No. Never. Well, you may be saying, Morgan, what's so creepy about sandwiches? Well, yellow. (laughs) they're creepy if they're made by cult members. Oh. The Yellow Deli is a deli that's run by a cult known as the Twelve Tribes. Oh, wait. I think I have heard of this. (laughs) They have 21 deli locations around the world. But the one that matters to this episode is in Rutland, Vermont. And they have a deli and a hostel that are both popular destinations for both AT and LT through hikers. Interesting. Yep. So, first of all, here's a little bit about the cult from our good friend Wikipedia. The Twelve Tribes, a religious organization formerly known as the Vine Christian Community Church, the Northeast Kingdom, Kingdom Community Church, the Messianic communities and the community apolistic order. I definitely did not <laughs> pronounce two of those right, but whatever. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> Is a new religious movement founded by Gene Springs, now known as Yonek, 
that sprang out of the Jesus movement in 1972 in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Interesting. Yep. The group calls itself an attempt to recreate the first century church as it described as it is described in the book of Acts. The name 12 tribes is also derived from a quote of the Apostle Paul in Acts 26-7. Apostle Paul! Yeah. Actually, no, wait, that's not, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) What? I was thinking of the high priest Aaron from the Crystals episode. Oh, right, 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 right. (laughs) (laughs) Different guy. (laughs) Other name that still exists today. (laughs) The group has also been referred to as the Yellow Deli People, and it's informally referred to as the community. (laughs) The group has ignited controversy and garnered unfavorable unfavorable attention from the media, the anti-cult movement, and governments, which we'll go into more in a little bit. Yeah. So, we know that they run the Yellow Deli restaurants, but they also run a bunch of other businesses Basically so that their members don't have to seek outside employment. Makes sense. Their businesses include Parchment Press, a printing company offering printing services and also printing and selling their group's literature. Of course. Of course. BOJ Construction, a general contractor based in Plymouth, Mass. and operating nationally. Oh, no. Commonwealth Construction, contract... Construction contracting primarily in the southeastern U.S. Mm. Greener Formulas, a soap and body care research and development firm with ties to their other business, Common Sense Farm. Interesting. Common Sense Farm, a soap and body care products manufacturing and distribution facility located on the group's farm in Cambridge, New York. Interesting. Simon the Tanner. What? chain of shoe stores and outdoor outfitters currently with locations in new hampshire and vermont and like we said they run the yellow deli restaurants as well as common ground cafe restaurants so as expected there's all sorts of controversy involved because cult yeah (laughs) the 12 tribes believe in a bunch of super problematic stuff Understandably. Do an entire episode on them one day because the history is pretty wild and some of their beliefs suck. Great. Yep. I'm going to tell you about them. Great. Can't wait. Some of these include that women should be subservient to men and their primary purpose is childbearing and rearing. Wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Wrong. Wrong is right. Wrong. They believe that people of different races should not marry. Stupid. Quote, our solution to the race problem is not to intermarry everybody. End quote. One member told a reporter in 2011. Quote, our goal is to not create one gray human being. End quote. Nobody would be gray. Don't worry, it gets worse. (laughs) In the 12th tribe, slavery is not just acceptable, but Bibly sanctioned. That's stupid. Yep. In a 1988 teaching, Spriggs wrote that Paul and Yeshua, the group's name name for Jesus, didn't rebuke anyone who had slaves, so it's all right by principle to have slaves. Um, Slavery is the (laughs) only way for some people to be useful in society, end quote. 
No. And if the American slaves were mistreated, it was the fault of the slave, end quote. No! No! I told you it gets worse. (laughs) It made me want to rip my hair out. Uh, Okay, continue. Corporal punishment is essential to raising children. God damn it. The rod expedites and takes away the guilt from a child's heart, Spriggs wrote in 1990. No. And, in addition, lying is completely permissible for 12 tribes members. What? Yep. Isn't... Are you not supposed to lie? Yep. I feel like the Bible definitely says that. Oh, yeah. That's not chill, guys. Nothing about them is chill. I mean, they also said that the Bible said that people should have slaves, which is also not anywhere in there, so. And they think that women are built for childbearing. Yeah, no thank you. The group, which claims a worldwide membership of somewhere between two and 3,000 people. Losers. Has been subjected to police raids in Germany, Vermont, and elsewhere. Good. Following allegations of child abuse and violation of child labor laws, and individuals' members have been arrested for child abuse, pedophilia, and even child murder, notes Joe Hawkins, who briefly attended meetings of the group in Winnipeg, Canada, with his wife, who soon left him to join the community. Oh, no. It's all bad. Apparently, they make a good sandwich, though. Oh. (laughs) That's fun. Stop at the yellow. I didn't know. I had heard of the yellow deli. Yeah. Like while I was hiking, but I didn't stop there because I forgot about it. (laughs) Um, Next time that I'm in the area, I might have to stop by just to investigate. I won't buy anything because I don't want to support this organization. But there are varying accounts from hikers. Some say that they felt uneasy and pressured to join while in the presence of members. Well, others say that they never mentioned religion at all when they were with members, so who knows? Hmm. Um, Most of the reviews on TripAdvisor and Yelp and all of that are extremely positive. Oh. And only a handful even mention the 12 tribes. Uh, Then they're probably by the actual members of the cult. Yeah, right? (laughs) So... Out of 103 reviews on TripAdvisor, 61 of them were excellent, 36 were very good, 4 were average, 2 were poor, and 0 were terrible. Interesting. I did include one review because it really made me laugh. Oh, go for it. (laughs) This person gave them 4 stars. The title is, Great Food But Creepy. (laughs) (laughs) This place has great food, but it's run by a group of commune hippies. Who actively try to rope you into their seven tribes. <laughs> Please drink the Kool-Aid lifestyle. Very uneasy vibe here. Great sandwiches, though, if you don't mind supporting a cult. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's so funny. So, yeah. That's pretty much all I have for creepy stuff along the long trail. That was awesome. Um, it's two, the long trail, like we said before, is 273 miles long, so places like the PCT... Hold on, what is that noise? Sorry, that's my can. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the long trail, like we said before, is 273 miles long, 
Mm-hmm. So compared to like the PCT and the AT, there's not as much creepy stuff because it's just a shorter distance. Oh yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I and... hope you enjoyed it. Sorry to end on a sad note with the twelve tribes, but it's okay. I guess they have great sandwiches. Apparently, they do grow all their own food. Too bad they believe in slavery and subservient women. Yeah, because the fact that they have, like, their own, like, farm and skincare stuff seems pretty cool. Yeah, I think, like, their hostels for hikers are pretty much free to stay at. Yeah, they probably, like, sing to you, though. Probably, Probably hand you all that literature that they print. Mm, yeah. And you got a backpack <laughs> with it? What the heck? Uh, no thanks. Extra we'll weight. No, thank you. <laughs> Buddy system. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as always, stay tuned next Monday and every Monday for new episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you'd like to listen. We're on Instagram at Monday Mornings Pod, on Twitter at Monday Mornings P, and you have a Facebook page. We mostly use Instagram. I'm trying to get better about using the other things. Yeah, I uh, don't have Facebook on my phone anymore, so. I also I'm just not... don't know how to use Twitter. So. <laughs> I'm not in that group. I did tweet a few times while you were hiking, but <laughs> I tweet weird things from my own Twitter. I don't know how to tweet like a podcast person, so <laughs> we'll figure it out eventually, yeah. maybe. But if you have any questions or topics that you'd like to have covered in a future episode, you can DM us on Instagram and Morgan will answer. Hit us up on Twitter and maybe I'll answer if I can fig- if I feel like it. Um, <laughs> but we also, you can email us, which both of us understand how to use email, at mondaymorningspod at gmail.com. <laughs> if you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Share on your Insta story. We'll send you cool stuff if you do it. Yeah. Refer people. We can do like that incentive thing that people do when they're trying to hire people. Oh, yeah. A referral bonus. You get we a won't sticker. hire you, but we'll send you stickers. Yeah. <laughs> Air high fives. Yeah. But as always, start your Monday mornings the right way with Maddie and Morgan. Bye.